When Callaway introduced the Apex irons, they created the player's distance iron category. Now they're redefining it with the Apex 21, the first forged irons designed with artificial intelligence. Apex's classic forged craftsmanship is paired with futuristic AI for a combination of tour feel, incredible distance, and shot making control. In 21, there's an Apex for everyone with the Apex, the Apex Pro, and the new forgiving Apex DCB. When it comes to rising home prices in Canada, some people blame house flippers, some blame foreign buyers, and some blame developers. But my guests this week asked, what if it's actually just regular people who like the idea that they could buy a house and sell it at a huge windfall one day? I'm Gabe Friedman, and you're listening to Down to Business. My guest, Paul Kershaw, is a professor at the University of British Columbia's School of Population and Public Health, and he has a background in economics, law, and political science and founded a university community think tank slash laboratory of sorts called Generation Squeeze that looks at housing, childcare, declining income, and much more to understand the generational divide. In my interview, Kershaw told me that rising real estate prices distort Canada's economic growth and that it's hurting younger generations. We spoke about childcare and the federal budget too. As always, this interview was edited for clarity and brevity. Hi, Paul. Thanks a lot for joining me today. It's really my pleasure being here. So oftentimes when we talk about generational divides, people discuss it in social terms, you know, how attitudes have changed towards different social mores. You think about it through an economic lens and see rising housing costs and lower earnings as among the main pressures. What's different about these issues right now? Yeah, well, let me describe what sort of the demographic of Generation Squeeze faces, which is sort of a combination of Gen X, Y, and, and Z now. I mean, here you have a group of Canadians who go to post-secondary more, start uh, with more student debt for the privileged because tuition is typically higher. They then land jobs that after adjusting for inflation, pay thousands of dollars less for full-time work to then face home prices that are up hundreds of thousands of dollars. And as dreams of home ownership are crushed, then their consolation prize is rising rents. This causes everyone to sort of delay some major milestones in their lives, like starting a family because they're waiting to have a financial foundation. You can only delay so long. You have tick-tock, tick-tock biological clocks. And then when people do start their families, childcare, although we might have broken through in this election with $10 a day childcare, it costs another rent or mortgage-sized payment, as does being on parental leave. So there's this vice grip that's squeezing younger Canadians between time and money pressures because their hard work isn't paying off like it used to when it comes to covering their major cost of living, housing. And on top of all that, they inherit larger public debts, both larger government debts and larger environmental debts. And that is a 360 degree squeeze on younger Canadians that we don't talk enough about. And we haven't yet recognized there is a common systemic intergenerational villain that is playing out in our climate problems, our housing affordability problems, our lack of fair investment treating young and old alike in our budget problems, and our balancing of our budget problems. And I think we need our political parties to start talking about how they're going to slay the systemic villain. Mm. Yeah. You've been involved in efforts to tax empty homes to limit rent increases, uh, to build more housing. And I mean, as you recognize, young people are still feeling squeezed. What's the simplest solution to Canada's housing problem? How quickly could we realistically tackle this? Well, I'm definitely on record saying there's no silver bullet, which is part of the problem, but there is silver buckshot. And so, you know, my Gen Squeeze lab and, and our, you know, our alliance of you know, tens of thousands of people strong at Gen Squeeze now, we've been partnering with other academics across the country and other community experts to identify what turns out to be about 15 clusters of action items that we need to take to restore housing affordability. 
they fall into three broad categories. Like suffice it to say, we need to scale up not-for-profit housing because many people are not going to earn enough to actually pay market rents or let alone think about you know market ownership. But many Canadians, the vast majority, are still going to have to rely on a regular housing market that it can be fixed. And so we need to dial down some sorts of harmful demand and we need to dial up the right kinds of supply of housing and bedrooms for people to raise families in, stop building so many studio units. Uh, and we need to dial up protectors for renters in the regular market. But the part I feel a disproportionate responsibility to push on these days is that Canada, both individual households and our governments, are addicted to high and rising home prices. Uh, and this is why we're having a challenge solving unaffordability in housing. Because high home prices aren't uniformly bad or uniformly good. Uh, it depends on how you're looking at it. And I'm a homeowner, have been for over 15 years now. And you need to know that I live in a region where in any given year, my home will go up in more value than I actually earn for full-time work as a university professor. And that's a pretty decent paid job. Uh, so I get wealthier while I sleep, watch TV, cook. And many a Canadian, especially in cities, has kind of got used to that. And they want more of that. And so we had have feedback loops in our housing system where regular households are actually reinforcing feedback loops that continue to drive home prices higher because we like the wealth windfalls. We like the added financial security. And then at the government level, governments tend to pride themselves on being good managers of the economy. Well, the largest part of our economy now is real estate rental and leasing. It's 14% of Canada's gross domestic product, which would be great if about 14% of Canadians found employment in the same industry. But we don't. Fewer than 2% of Canadians find employment in real estate, which means that our approach to growing the economy in the last decade or so has been grow the major cost of living. Those who work in the industry, like realtors, they make pretty good incomes. Owners, like me, get nice wealth windfalls. But everybody else has their hard work pay off less because their earnings fall behind the major cost of living. It's one way to grow an economy. It's not a good way if you actually care about hard work paying off for younger Canadians, newcomers of any age, and for that matter, renters of any age. And in an election period, we didn't have any party speak frankly about that problem. You don't tend to have hard conversations in an election, but we desperately need to have this one. There are winners as a result of what's causing unaffordability. Regular households like mine have actually been implicated in that. We need regular folks not just some foreign buyer or money launderer or nasty person who has an empty home or some mean-spirited, I don't know, developer, all these other villains that we're so likely to say the problem is them. We need to be focusing on actually how we might be implicated in a problem that is causing tremendous harm to younger Canadians. For people we love, they're our kids, our grandchildren, our cousins, our nephews. Well, this is maybe a time to ask, I mean, you said there's no silver bullet, but you must have a sort of wish list of policies and I'm wondering what's at the top of it for housing, because it seems to me in some places, it also just seems like a supply issue. So I think there's actually a particularly strong focus on supply in Canada. I think that's where most of the narrative sits. And it is absolutely important. Uh, so you'll have like the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. They have you know the biggest source of money that they're doing is around supply. They have their whole supply challenge. Uh, and it's good. We do need to be creating that sort of missing middle housing in the regular market. We do need to be scaling up not-for-profit supply. And we need to be building, in particular, more purpose-built rental with enough bedrooms so that renters can raise families and that they can have the security of tenure that comes with purpose-built rental as opposed to renting from some sort of small-scale amateur landlord who has a condo that they make available. But when it reaches that price point for their own personal gain or own personal planning, they sell it and you disrupt that family. So we need all of that, but we've been increasing supply commensurate to you know, the growth in households, generally speaking. And we need to recognize that the unaffordability also reflects demand issues. GenSqueeze has worked hard to help governments try and dial down harmful demand. But what you're hearing from me is 
I think we've made some progress on the easy, low-hanging fruit, the easy villains, the money launderer, the house flipper, the speculator, the foreign buyer, etc. We still need to keep doing that, but now we need to have the harder conversation with the rest of us. Systems sustain themselves because a sufficient number of people benefit from the system working in the status quo. They may not always recognize it, but it's because they're not so concerned about the status quo that they keep reinforcing it. And that is the challenge where I would like to focus some new policy conversations. So one would be on, we're mismeasuring the rise in home prices in how we calculate inflation. And so then our inflation measures aren't giving the right signals to the Bank of Canada for what they're doing in terms of trying to manage interest rates. And there is reason for us to be worried that as we've been fueling the economy to try and get out of this pandemic-induced recession, and we've had historically low interest rates for a whole range of good reasons, we haven't executed that monetary policy in as careful a way to deflect the collateral damage that has occurred in housing by further fueling home prices out of reach for what locals earn. So I want to have a monetary policy conversation that says, how do we reduce collateral damage to housing affordability? Second of all, and I'm going to get nasty emails from this, one reason people are inclined to treat housing not just as a place to call home, but as a good investment return is because we shelter principal residences from capital gains tax. Like we don't shelter other assets. And I am not a proponent of now including all principal residences under capital gains taxation. But I will tell you that there are 9% of Canadians who own homes over $1 million in this country. I'm one of them. We often think that million-dollar homes are the norm, but it's only it's not even one in 10 households in this country. And I think that those who are lucky enough to live in the most affluent households right now could be asked to potentially contribute somewhat more towards taxation based on our household asset and not just our income. And that is a space that the conversation needs to move in because it would have two salutary effects. One would be we would actually raise some revenue that you could maybe put into supporting renters more, et cetera, or for that matter, put into paying for medical care for the aging population or childcare or any other range of social goods and not have to keep putting pressure on our income taxes, which isn't necessarily the best way to always raise our revenue. Second of all, if you were to try and reduce the tax shelter on high value homes over a million dollars for those 9% of most affluent households, you'd have a new signal in the housing system that would say, oh, you know what, we don't want home prices to keep passing this million dollar threshold and we're going to try and discourage it to some degree. So as we raise revenue, we try and slow down home prices, which also contributes to restoring affordability. It's a win-win. And the people who are in those especially affluent households, again, myself included, it's not really a big loss for us. There's ways for us to design a tax that wouldn't even have us necessarily pay it till we sell the home. So there's all sorts of ways in which there could be a win-win-win here. Start your angry emails right now. Tell me I should move to China. <laughs> Let me let me back up a minute and just ask, are you calling for that tax to be recognized on a yearly basis or when you sell the house? So every year, people are told what the annual value of their home is. You use it for paying property taxes to your municipalities. I'm saying that people who have home values over a million dollars, the portion of the value over a million dollars, we should add a little progressive surtax to that would be calculated annually and you could defer it until the moment you sold your home. So it'd be an annual deferrable progressive surtax on the value of homes over a million dollars, subject to only 9% of households in the country. It could raise about $5 billion and could do a lot to jumpstart some affordable housing or pay for some additional medical care for the aging population. Well, I want to talk to you about another issue connected to declining earnings that you've talked about, which is childcare. People with young children spend extraordinary amounts on daycare today. Can you explain why it's more expensive now than in the past? Yes, childcare is effectively another rent or mortgage-sized payment in households' lives. And the need for childcare 
has grown in recent decades because not only do we need it for promoting gender equality, but we've needed it because as home prices have continued to go up and earnings have been stagnant and falling, for especially for younger folks, you needed the shift towards dual earner households. And if you're a single parent or a lone parent, you're often in the labor market more than in the past. So there's just this increased requirement for more childcare to facilitate increased labor force attachment, which, by the way, creates some risk of having too little time at home. We can talk about that another day. But in terms of this childcare expense, then what's driving it? Well, most of the childcare fee is actually the wages paid to the childcare worker, 85 to 90% of it. And these childcare workers are not getting pay equity level wages right now. And so they're not making big bucks, but even at having sub pay equity level wages akin to what we pay parking lot attendants to care for our kids, it adds up over a yearly basis. And so in the absence of public investment that we put into our schools, into our hospitals, our retirement security programs, In the absence of that, you have parents who can't afford to pay pay equity level wages to buy a service that's essential for them to be in the labor market, which is why it's kind of a quintessential market failure. We don't have enough of it. Everyone's stressed by not having it. And we've seen in the pandemic, finally, people kind of recognize it's critical for our economy. So it's great. We have this now announcement of a $10 a day system that came in the federal budget of 2021. I just wanted to brag a little bit, like the communications work that came for branding a national childcare system as $10 a day did start in the Gen Squeeze lab at the University of BC. It then got taken by a movement of childcare advocates in British Columbia. And then together, that's going to help us popularize this idea. But we are at the precipice of making a historic investment to reduce this major cost in young people's lives. It's one of these moments we are partially slaying that systemic intergenerational villain I talked about. There's more work to do, but this is a good arrow into the, you know, into the thigh of that villain that helps us make some headway to make hard work pay off for younger folks, reduce some of the stress that comes with being in your prime childbearing and rearing years. And I am so excited that we had three of the four political parties in the last election converge around this idea, a lot of consensus. And I actually suspect to see it in the next conservative platform as well, because I think they got hurt in this election because they were weak on child care and the country has moved past that weakness. And one of the interesting things about this, too, though, is I've had other guests come on who've talked about studies that show that if the government subsidizes child care, it'll pay for itself because it allows more people, particularly women, mothers, to go back into the workforce and the taxes they pay help pay for this program. And I'm wondering if there are other sort of circles like that that you could create around education or, or even housing. Yeah, so we've known about how childcare could pay for itself, including because of the evidence coming out of Quebec for some time. We should just recognize that having a good childcare system was first called for 50 years ago by the Royal Commission on the Status of Women. And we found a range of reasons. First, you know, lack of commitment to gender equality and over time, lack of commitment to intergenerational fairness, haven't been investing in it. It looks like we're about to, we actually have the investments in the 2021 budget. So I'm going to tick that off and I'm going to celebrate um, and say, you know, it's not always though economic evidence that drives the day. You know, it's, it's, under, it's actually framing information for people in terms of what their values are. And for a long time, you would hear people in Canada say to me when I'd go on the radio a decade ago, we need to do $10 a child care. And they're like, if you can't afford to have your kids, then don't have kids at all. And they're failing to recognize this isn't an individual problem. Young folks are working harder. They're going to school more. The individual household level, adults devoting more time to the labor market than ever. Uh, there is not a lazy demographic. There's a hardworking demographic. And the system doesn't uh, return the favor with having that hard work pay off with incomes that are keeping pace with the major cost of living. So we have to recognize the system is failing people. Individuals are working hard. Let's think about your housing question, though. Are there other virtuous circles? This comes back to my observation about what's driving GDP. 14% of the economy, the biggest part of our economy, real estate. But almost nobody finds employment in it. Is that the best way to grow the economy? 
could we actually not grow a more prosperous economy by saying, let's actually stimulate business growth in our cities because we're actually making it possible for people to afford to work in those cities because the earnings are closer to what the major cost of living housing is. That's the way we should be thinking about fueling further economic growth by recoupling housing costs and earnings, as opposed to the current plan, which is actually continuing to power home prices to leave earnings behind. There is a virtuous circle by recoupling them. And we need to start thinking that that's what building back better looks like. It's going to take some work and we're going to have to be comfortable with some slower GDP levels as we shift from real estate driving GDP. But who cares if GDP goes up if all it's really doing is making our hard work not pay off as much? I want our economy to be measured as, does it require less work from us going forward? That sounds like more prosperity. And is it sustainable economically, environmentally, and socially? GDP doesn't capture that for us. Interesting. At times you talk about how the federal government spends a lot more money on elder people than it does on younger people. And I wondered whether some of these effects are related to the baby boomer generation retiring. Canada Public Pension Fund may be a good example. There used to be nearly seven workers for every senior drawing on the program. Now we're down to nearly four. Soon it'll be nearly three. And so workers are going to need to contribute more to keep the CPP funded. And But that's a worrying trend because if these are driving systemic problems throughout the economy, it seems like things are going to have to get worse maybe even before they get better. Well, things in our budgeting are already getting worse. You saw that no party was uh, campaigning for our votes by proposing to balance the budget even four years from now when we don't expect to be in a recession. And what you just described is at the heart of that problem. And it's interesting you referred to the Canada Public Pension Plan because in the mid-1990s, we recognized, oh, it's a problem when you build systems for you know people drawing investments later in their lives when we started when there were seven workers and in the not-so-distant future, there's going to be fewer than three. And so we adjusted in the mid-1990s the Canada Public Pension Plan and said, we need people to be contributing more now in proportion to what they want to draw down later when they're older. It was a good move. It actually helped to restore our CPP on a fiscally sustainable path. But we didn't do it for old age security, and we didn't do it for our medical care system, which are both, again, disproportionately driven by demand later in people's lives. And as a result right now, the fastest growing part of the federal budget is absolutely old age security. It's the elderly benefits. And yet you'll have, for instance, Monsieur Blanchet in Quebec say that the federal government is ignoring the needs of seniors. Now, there are reasons to concern. My mom's a senior, so I want to get it right for my mom, um, you know, my parents, my in-laws, etc. But Monsieur Blanchet is fundamentally mischaracterizing that the biggest increase in the federal budget, just go to table A16, on page 333, is the elderly benefit. In one single year, it will go up by $18.5 billion in this mandate compared to where we are right now. $18.5 billion investment increase in a single year for old age security. In the same period of time, they proposed to increase the Canada child benefit by $700 million. That's a 26 times difference in terms of how fast we're going to grow old age security compared to the Canada child benefit. I need Monsieur Blanchet to actually read the federal budget before he keeps suggesting that the federal government is underinvesting in seniors. There could be more we could do for that demographic, but we'll fundamentally have to then say, how are we going to also invest urgently for younger Canadians? And how are we going to make sure we're balancing the budgets so that we're not leaving unpaid bills in an unfair way for future generations? Given these dynamics that you just described, it's not the facts always, it's the way you frame it and what's politically expedient. And just given the sort of squeeze, which seems to be tightening, are you optimistic for the future? Yes, I'm always an optimistic guy. 
I think that there are a range of ways in which we are obfuscating this systemic intergenerational villain. I just want to underscore, it's not some mean-spirited parent or grandparent. It's not individuals that are trying to screw their kids and grandchildren. Something bigger is going on in our systems and we're not recognizing it. It's this common intergenerational tension. But I think that the pandemic has created a moment where we've really focused on intergenerational solidarity. We have had a younger demographic that's, especially before the Delta variant, less likely to be harmed uh, in terms of illness from COVID, saying, I'm going to disrupt my education and my post-secondary and my jobs, and I'm going to work differently, and I might even put my rent at risk because I will contribute to the physical distancing that's required to prevent the spread of this illness that's disproportionately hurting my older parents or grandparents. It's a lovely moment of intergenerational solidarity as we come out of the pandemic and get past this damn Delta variant one and we increase our vaccination rates. I want that moment of intergenerational solidarity to be continued and say, okay, how can we bring this solidarity to other issues like climate change and housing affordability and our government budgets for that matter? And if we were to do so, we can truly make this country work for all generations from the early years onwards. Well, it's a fascinating way to think about the generational divide. And thank you so much, Paul. My pleasure. Have a great day. That was Paul Kershaw, professor at UBC School of Population and Public Health and founder of Generation Squeeze. Thanks to the stellar team behind Down to Business, including Bryce Hall for music and production, Yadula Hussein for editing, and Pamela Heaven and Victoria Wells for web support. Thanks, as always, for listening, for rating us, and for sharing Down to Business episodes with others. We really appreciate it. You may have heard that our show won an award last week. Episode 74 about the lobster dispute in Nova Scotia from last October won silver in the audio and visual storytelling category from the Canadian chapter of the Society for Advancing Business, Editing, and Writing. 7th Annual Best in Business Competition. Hats off to the other award winners. You can listen to that episode in our archive at financialpost.com. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week. But as usual, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com and in any of our five weekly newsletters covering the economy, energy, finance, investing, and the workplace.